Hi everyone, welcome back to Logical Bible Study, where we look at the gospel reading from today's Mass, and we try to give you a good way of going about understanding the literal sense of that text, which is where we always want to start as Catholics. Today we're looking at another one of Jesus' parables, though one that's not as well known. So let's get into it. It's Matthew chapter 18, verse 21 to 35. Peter went up to Jesus and said, Lord, how often must I forgive my brother if he wrongs me? As often as seven times? Jesus answered, Not seven, I tell you, but seventy-seven times. And so the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who decides to settle his accounts with his servants. When the reckoning began, they brought him a man who owed ten thousand talents, But he had no means of paying, so his master gave orders that he should be sold, together with his wife and children and all his possessions, to meet the debt. At this, the servant threw himself down at his master's feet. Give me time, he said, and I will pay the whole sum. And the servant's master felt so sorry for him that he let him go and cancelled the debt. Now, as this servant went out, he happened to meet a fellow servant who owed him 100 denarii, and he seized him by the throat and began to throttle him. Pay what you owe me, he said. His fellow servant fell at his feet and implored him, saying, Give me time and I will pay you. But the other would not agree. On the contrary, he had him thrown into prison till he should pay the debt. His fellow servants were deeply distressed when they saw what had happened, and they went to their master and reported the whole affair to him. Then the master sent for him. You wicked servant, he said, I cancelled all that debt of yours when you appealed to me. Were you not bound then to have pity on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And in his anger, the master handed him over to the torturers, till he should pay all his debt. And that is how my heavenly Father will deal with you, unless you each forgive your brother from your own heart. So what's the context here in Matthew 18? Jesus has just been given the apostles' instructions on how they should run the church in his absence, particularly in terms of dealing with sins in the community. So he's just given them the passage where it's If a brother sins against you, here's what you should do. So in that passage earlier in Matthew 18, Jesus had some pretty harsh words there about uh, people who commit grave sins in the Christian community. He tells the apostles to take fairly radical action, which can actually, if the person doesn't repent, it can result in excommunication. That's the instructions that he gives his apostles. So now it's probably, they're probably sitting there thinking, wow, that's, that seems pretty strong. Well, what's the place for forgiveness? How does forgiveness fit into that picture? So that's probably all um, sort of bubbling around in their minds here. And it's important that we understand the difference between the two. In the first case, Jesus is talking about, he's talking to the apostles about how they should enact church discipline in serious matters that are affecting the church. And now in this passage today, it's something that applies to all of us because here Jesus is going to talk about how often should a Christian forgive a person who sins against them personally? So we're dealing here with personal forgiveness for personal sins, as we're going to see. So Peter now comes up to Jesus in verse 21 
And he has a genuine question here. And he asks Jesus, how often must I forgive my brother if he wrongs me? So in verse 15, Jesus has told the apostles what to do if a brother sins against you. And the answer um, Jesus says in verse 15 is, go and tell him his fault. And if he listens, you have gained your brother. So Jesus has already said that. But Peter might be now thinking, okay, that's fine. But how many times do we actually have to do that if someone keeps sinning against me? So that's Peter's mentality. How often do we actually have to do that if it just keeps happening? He's thinking there's probably a cutoff point. Surely there's a cutoff point where it's not reasonable to forgive the person anymore. So he says to Jesus, is it as often as seven times? So why does he mention seven here? Well, there's a couple of possible reasons. There's some evidence that many rabbis, Jewish leaders at this time, thought that three was the maximum number for forgiving someone of the same offense. You should forgive someone three times and no more than that. There is some evidence that that was the prevailing thought. So Peter, when he says seven, might be thinking that he's been quite generous. I'll increase it to seven, he says. But also the number seven for the Jews symbolized completion or perfection. So Peter might be thinking seven is the number of completion. So therefore, if I've forgiven someone seven times, I've fulfilled the requirements of forgiveness. I've forgiven them the perfect number of times. The duty is complete. He might be thinking something along those lines. But Jesus says in verse 22, not seven, but 77 times. Other translations have this as seven times, sorry, 70 times seven. So there's some ambiguity in how the Greek reads with these numbers. But either way, the same, the, uh, the basic meaning is the same. So 70 times seven or even 77 are both more significant than just seven by itself. So we're talking here about seven times seven. So it's like perfection times perfection. So when Jesus says this, they didn't have a word for infinity or unlimited. So when Jesus says um, 70 times 7, he basically means you need to forgive someone an infinite number of times. So it carries this idea of total perfection, total infinity. When Jesus here mentions 77 times, he could also be thinking of Genesis 4, verse 24, where Lamech says he will be avenged 77-fold times. And so in the Old Testament, that particular metaphor is used for unlimited vengeance. And Jesus here takes that and uses it in reference to unlimited forgiveness. So Jesus here is not saying once you get to 77, the 78th time, that's it. You don't forgive them. It's just a Jewish way of saying unlimited. Your forgiveness needs to be unlimited, which is fairly radical. That's something quite radical about the Christian message. Not many other religions would emphasize it in that uh, using language that's so strong. So Jesus now goes on to give a parable called the parable of the unforgiving servant. And the whole point of this parable, and Jesus makes that pretty clear, there's not a lot of mystery about this parable. The point of this parable is that Christians must forgive those who sin against them. Jesus is telling this parable to his apostles, and the meaning to them is reasonably clear, as it is to us. So Christians must forgive those who sin against them. Verse 23, Jesus starts the parable by saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. So Jesus is telling his apostles this parable because he wants them to know something about how God governs the affairs in his own kingdom. This parable, Jesus explicitly tells them, 
tells you something about the kingdom of God. His apostles are going to be leaders of the kingdom of God. So this is information that he wants them to know about how God wants to run his kingdom. So in our analysis today, we're going to focus mostly on the parable itself. We don't want to read too much into all the details because I don't think this is one of those parables where every detail means something necessarily. Jesus makes his point pretty clear at the end. And so we'll we'll talk about the overall point towards the end. Now, before we jump into it, keep in mind in this parable, the king and the master are the same person. If we don't say that, you might get a bit lost. So the king and the master are the same person. So Jesus says, a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. So in that time period, a king would delegate tasks to his servants to carry out. Sometimes the servants would borrow money to do transactions on behalf of the king. And every so often, the king would call his servants to account. He'd make sure that they've made the money back that that they borrowed from him. And he'd just check that they're paying back their debts that they owe to him. That's a normal thing a king would do. They brought him in a man who owed 10,000 talents, but he had no means of paying. So he brings in one of the servants, and we need to talk about the numbers involved here. So 10,000 talents, the word there for 10,000 is myriad. That's the largest possible number in Greek. They didn't have a million. Um, 10,000 was their largest number. Now, how much is a talent? So it's a kind of a measurement of currency. And one talent was worth 6,000 denarii. So one denarii is a single day's wage. Um, One denarii is a single day's wage. And one talent is 6,000 denarii. So if you earned 365 denarii a year, we're basically talking about somewhere around 20 years worth of wages is one talent, something like that. Um, or half a lifetime's worth of wages. That would be one talent. People in this culture did not have a talent's worth of money. They might have a couple of denarii saved up. That's about it. It'd be very rare to have anyone who had a talent's worth of money, which is 6,000 denarii. But Jesus here is talking about 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents. So we're talking here, it's basically an infinity. Jesus has picked a unit of measurement, which is equivalent to, in the Jewish mind, infinity. No one would ever have this much money. No one would ever make this much money. No one would ever be able to pay it back. Um, It's 10,000 times 20 years worth of wages. So this is supposed to represent the infinite amount we owe God in terms of our sin. So the guy gets dragged in. He can't pay it back the debt. Verse 25, his master gave orders that he should be sold together with his wife and children and all his possessions to meet the debt. And that's what kings would do in that culture. They would sell the person off as well as their family in order to try and make back some of the money. That was just, you knew what you were getting yourself into. That was kind of how the culture worked. But in verse 26, the servant begs for more time and begs for his family not to be sold. And then the king feels sorry for him. He feels compassion And he lets the man go and he cancels the man's debt. Now, the king didn't have to do that. The king wasn't required to cancel the man's debt, but he chooses to. And this points us to the mercy of God. God forgives the infinite debts that we've accrued against him. Verse 28. So the servant's been forgiven. But now as this servant went out, he happened to meet a fellow servant who owed him 100 denarii. 
So this is 100 days worth of wages, which is a decent amount, but it's nowhere near the 10,000 talents that the man himself owed. So there's 600,000 times larger is what his own debt was. And now he, yeah, this guy comes along who owes him 100 denarii. Now, there's supposed to be a parallel here between sins we commit against each other and sins we've committed against God. So there's an infinite debt that we owe to God, but the sins that people commit against us are much smaller in terms of magnitude. So the, this first servant, the one who's been forgiven, seizes the other servant by the throat and begins to throttle him. Pay what you owe me. So this first man has no patience or mercy, even though the king has just forgotten him, has forgiven him an infinity's worth of debt, but he's still not showing patience or mercy. Verse 29, so the second servant, the one who owes him the debt, says, give me time and I will pay you. Now notice that's exactly what the first servant said to the king. It's actually a reasonable request here. A hundred denarii is an amount that he could pay back if he is given a little more time. So it is reasonable to request mercy here. Verse 30, but the other servant would not agree. On the contrary, he had him thrown into prison till he should pay the debt. So the first servant, he does actually have a legal right to do this. If In the Jewish society, if someone owed you money and they hadn't paid you back by the due date, you did have the legal right to go to the Jewish law courts and the person could be thrown into prison for not paying the money back. So he's exercising a legal right here. But really, he should have shown mercy because the king showed mercy to him. Verse 31, the other servants see what he's done and they report it to the king. The king calls him in and says, You wicked servant, I cancelled all that debt of yours when you appealed to me. Were you not bound then to have pity on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? So the logic here makes sense. The king had showed him mercy for a much larger amount, the 10,000 talents. So he should have shown his fellow servants mercy as well for the much smaller debt. That makes sense. But he didn't. He didn't do what he should have done. Um, You know, he didn't follow what the moral law basically said that he should have done. And in his anger, the master handed him over to the torturers till he should pay back all his debt. So the king reinstates the debt that he'd originally cancelled from this first servant, and he throws him into prison until he can pay back the debt. And basically, that's never. He would never be able to pay back 10,000 talents. He's going to be in prison forever. And it mentions here torturers in prison. Roman, to- uh, Roman prisons did have torturers whose job it was to torture the people in prison. So this is a very familiar scene to the Jews at the time. So Jesus finishes the parable by telling his apostles the point he's trying to make. He says, And that is how my heavenly Father will deal with you unless you forgive each forgive sorry, unless you each forgive your brother from your heart. So sounds like harsh language, but it makes sense. This is the message of the parable. God will forgive us, those in the kingdom, only if we forgive our brothers from our heart. Notice that. God's not going to forgive us automatically. We have to forgive other people. Otherwise, God won't forgive us. And that's actually pretty clear in the Our Father. Remember in the Our Father, it says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And then straight after the Our Father, Jesus says, if you do not forgive others, 
your heavenly father will not forgive you. So this is actually a fairly common theme of Jesus. Something we don't talk about in church much, and some Christian groups would not like this teaching at all, uh, because some Christians teach that we have automatic forgiveness of our sins. But here Jesus makes it clear that the forgiveness God gives us is conditional on us forgiving others, particularly our own brothers. Now, in context, this is an answer to Peter's question about how many times we should forgive our brother. By Jesus telling this parable, he's saying, well, God forgives us infinitely and constantly. And so Jesus' point is basically we should do the same in the kingdom of God. We should forgive our brothers infinitely and constantly, even if they keep committing the same sin against us over and over again. So we're talking here about sins against each other um, when we do wrong to each other. God says... If a person asks for forgiveness, if it's possible to make it right with them, we should forgive them every single time without limit. And obviously there's a lot to be said about the psychology of forgiveness and what that involves. Uh, We're not going to go into that here, but the Catechism does spend a lot of time talking about what it means to actually forgive someone. Now, what do we make of the last part of the parable, which is the most confronting part, where the unforgiving servant is thrown into prison? So clearly it tells us something about God because Jesus says that's what God's going to do to us if we don't forgive others. So it does tell us something about God. What does it mean for God to throw a person into prison? Well, it could just be a basic metaphor meaning God will punish us and maybe we shouldn't take the prison too literally. But most people in the Catholic tradition, most church fathers and most scholars today would say it does represent something a bit more than that. It tells us something about the afterlife. So the prison represents an actual state of affairs that will come about in the afterlife if, people, if we do not forgive others. Now, there's two main options in terms of what it represents in the afterlife. The first option, and this is the most commonly accepted explanation, is that the prison here, Jesus intends that to mean hell. And this is the most likely option because, think about it, for us to get into heaven... After we die, God has to have forgiven our sins. But in this case, we're clearly talking about people whose sins God has not forgiven because they did not forgive others their sins. So this is someone whose sins have not been forgiven by God. They get thrown into prison. So it's quite likely this prison is supposed to represent hell. And a person is being tortured in hell. The word torture is actually used there. And in that case, when it says he's in, he's in prison until he should pay all his debt, it has to be metaphorical. It can't be literally true because the man cannot pay this debt. It's an infinite debt. 10,000 talents is not something that can be paid back. So it's a metaphor for, for basically saying this person who does not forgive others will be in eternal punishment forever for an inf- infinite amount of time. So that will be the hell explanation. And that's the most common. But there is another explanation which has been proposed in recent years, which is worth thinking about, and that's that the person in prison is a servant of the kingdom. So they're still in the kingdom, but they're in purgatory. They're in purgatory after they die because they did not show enough love and forgiveness during their lifetime. And the key evidence for this explanation would be the phrase, till he should pay, sorry, till he should pay back all the debt that he owes. Because that seems to imply that it's possible to pay back the debt, which would imply that it's possible to get out of 
this place, out of this jail, after a certain period of suffering, which is the Catholic teaching, that eventually everyone in purgatory will get out of purgatory and go into heaven after they've experienced some suffering as a result of the consequences of their bad choices in their life. So that's the purgatory explanation. I personally think hell is the best explanation of this because the point of Jesus talking about 10,000 talents is that to the Jewish mind, that's an infinite amount that can never be paid back. So it's not like the person can literally get out of prison, but it's possible that it represents purgatory. There's room for disagreement there. So that's our exegesis of the parable of the unforgiving servant. So this shows up in a couple of interesting places in the catechism, which is the, um, the summary of Catholic teaching. In paragraph 982 of the Catechism, which is in the section about the power of the keys, so the Church's ability to forgive sins, it says, There is no offence, however serious, that the Church cannot forgive. There is no one, however wicked and guilty, who may not confidently hope for forgiveness, provided his repentance is honest. Christ, who died for all men, desires that in his Church the gates of forgiveness should always be open to anyone who turns away from sin. And that paragraph references Matthew chapter 18 as an example of uh, how repentance and forgiveness is always available to people. And that applies even to this sin. So if someone has lived a life where they haven't been forgiving to others, but then they repent of that, well, then God can forgive them. Paragraph 2227 is in the section about marriage and the duties of parents. And there's an interesting link here to forgiveness. It says, Each and every one should be generous and tireless in forgiving one another for offences, quarrels, injustices, and neglect. Mutual affection suggests this. The charity of Christ demands it. And again, it references Matthew 18. So the church sees in Matthew 18 a command for all parents to forgive their children and also for children to forgive their parents. So that's an interesting connection. Um, forgiveness in the family, no matter how many times it's required. And then in paragraph 2843, which is in the section about the Lord's Prayer, there's a commentary on the line, as we forgive those who trespass against us, which obviously has a clear link to Jesus' teaching here in Matthew 18. So that paragraph says, Thus the Lord's words on forgiveness, the love that loves to the end, becomes a living reality. The parable of the merciless servant, which crowns the Lord's teaching on ecclesial communion, ends with these words, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. It is there, in fact, in the depths of my heart, that everything is bound and loosed. It is not in our power not to feel or to forget an offence, but the heart that offers itself to the Holy Spirit turns injury into compassion and purifies the memory in transforming the hurt into intercession. So that line in Matthew 18 in the parable where Jesus says, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart, this paragraph talks about what it means in terms of hearts and feelings and forgiveness. And it's quite a a nice link there. So all those paragraphs will go in the show notes. So hopefully you learned something new about this parable that's not as commonly talked about, the parable of the unforgiving servant. Please share this with others and we'll see you again tomorrow.